This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Andrew Beckerman Rodeau, and I'm a law professor and co-director of the Intellectual Property Program at Suffolk University Law School in Boston. I recently published an article in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology entitled The Problem with Intellectual Property Rights, Subject Matter Expansion. The full text of the article is available online at lawprofessor.org slash Yale. This article examines the expansion of the subject matter that can be protected under intellectual property law. It argues the expansive view of subject matter that is currently protectable has erased the clear delineation between patent, copyright, and trademark law. And this has led to overprotection of intellectual property in the form of overlaps, which allow multiple bodies of intellectual property law to simultaneously protect the same subject matter. Such overlapping protection is problematic because it interferes with the carefully developed doctrines that have evolved over time to balance the private property rights in intellectual creations against public access to such creations. The following is a recording of a presentation I recently made on the subject matter of this article. I'm generally uh, a strong advocate of IP rights, unlike some of my colleagues who in academia think that IP rights and patents are evil, negative, horrible things. I don't believe that's true. I do, however, think you can have too much of a good thing. And, and one of the uh, focuses of this article is that perhaps what's protectable by um, intellectual property law today is too much. Because, you know, intellectual property um, rights traditionally in the U.S. as they've developed have reflected a balance. And I think sometimes people have forgotten that balance. Now, what's that balance? Well, we want to give people property rights to encourage them to be creative and innovative, and that benefits everyone. But at the same time, if protection is too broad, that can be anti-competitive, it can limit public access to uh, new innovations and creativity, and it simply may not be in the best interest of society. So there's that balance. You know, you typically hear about this in the copyright area where there are many authors, not many, but there are some authors who argue rights should last forever because I created this and I should get the benefit of it forever. Well, that's really not reflecting the balance. It's for the benefit of the public to some extent balance against uh, reimbursing the innovator. And I suppose just to go back to the beginning, since talking about the Constitution seems in vogue, the Tea Party wanted you know read it in Congress, so I guess we should do that. Well, if you look at the um, this, this portion of the Constitution, which essentially is the patent copyright clause, and it authorizes Congress to enact patent and copyright law. And this right away contains some limitations, you know, Exclusive rights are given to inventors and authors. Well, what are exclusive rights? Those are property rights just referred to differently. But then there are limitations. It has to be for limited time. That's left up to uh, Congress to decide what the uh, limited time is. And then, of course, the purpose. Well, promote science and useful arts, which is for the benefit of the public. So right away, back in 1790, when they adopted the first patent, first IP law at the federal level in the U.S., it was based on this. And so right away you saw there was a balance built into the law. Since then, there's been you know, a significant amount of statutory development and case law development. Additional tests and doctrines have been developed across the uh, domain of IP law to affect that balance. 
between incentivizing creatives and inventors, and at the same time, making sure society has access to that technology and innovation at some point, and that actually benefits society. Nevertheless, subject matter that's available to be protected has expanded from 1790 dramatically. And it's not that um, that expansion per se is problematic. It's really the fact that at some point you get overlaps. So, you know, if you start out with um, patent, copyright, and trademark, which is what I'm going to focus on, each one had their little domain and their protected certain interests, but then they got bigger. And this is what we have today. You have creativity and innovation that can protect, be protected under more than one body of law at the same time. Why is that a problem? Well, the problem is that it, under, it undermines the balance. Each area of law independently develops different doctrines and rules to balance the competing interests of the public versus uh, incentivizing innovators and creators. And so when you start having an overlap, those policies become inconsistent. And there's very little consideration paid as these bodies have increased uh, over time. And I suppose that raises one obvious question. You know, why would that happen? Well, it's interesting, because I gave some thought to that. And I think it's because, in some respects, intellectual property law is a very fragmented area. You know, there really aren't very, I'm not sure there's really anybody who actually practices across the spectrum of IP law. Everyone today is an IP lawyer. You look at Martin L. Hubble, virtually every attorney listed is an IP lawyer. But the reality is, you have patent lawyers who practice patent law. And then you have some people that do copyright and trademark. And that's often in the context of business transactions generally. There's not a lot of people that just say, I'm a copyright lawyer, and that copyright lawyer, that's all I do, or just a trademark lawyer. You also have, you know, in addition to that, you have lots of professional organizations that tend to focus on one of these bodies of law as opposed to taking a unified approach. And as a result, you know, the various industry groups and other people involved in those trade organizations focus on expanding what they can protect under each of these bodies of law. Rarely any consideration is given to how it might affect the other areas of law. And then the other area where I think courts have simply ignored this issue, there were early decisions going back probably 100 years where some courts did say, you know, this could be a problem and you've got to elect one or the other. Virtually all modern decisions, including Supreme Court decisions, have punted on this. They've just said, I don't know, if it's covered by more than one, then it's covered by more than one. We're not going to deal with this. And so Congress has not done anything to deal with this. And so you have this problem that's simply growing and growing, and I think it's problematic because it throws off the whole balance. And I suppose, let me give a brief overview before we get into the overlap, just talking about how each of these areas has expanded dramatically. And then I'll look at some examples of um, overlaps and why I think that is a problem. Well, if you think back to um, federal copyright law, the first federal copyright law was enacted back in 1790. And what did it cover? Well, maps, charts, and books. That was it. So basically printed matter. But today, in the ensuing times in 1790, copyright now protects software, architectural works, three-dimensional products like jewelry or belt buckle, compilations of information, photographs, sound recordings, movies, music, pantomimes, choreographic works, advertisements, and numerous other things. So it's kind of a rather expansion from the original meaning of writings in the constitutional clause allowing patent and copyright law to be enacted. Federal patent law. Well, federal patent law is interesting in that the actual statutory scope from 1790 to today hasn't actually changed that much. 
Nevertheless, the uh, courts, especially the Supreme Court, going back uh, to the 1980s or earlier, have radically expanded what can be covered under those uh, judicial interpretation of those uh, statutory uh, categories in Section 101. The Jack McGarty case decided by the Supreme Court back in the 80s where they said pretty much anything is patentable. The courts may be reacting negatively to that expansive view today, and it may be one of the reasons why the Supreme Court keeps looking at these subject matter jurisdiction issues, and as was suggested earlier today, and I think it's accurate, they're probably going to look at it again. I don't think we're done with what, for the Supreme Court's review of Section 101 patent eligibility, for example. And then in 1952, we added methods or processes, essentially means the same thing, to patent law. And that proved to be not really much of an issue for decades, and then all of a sudden it became a major issue. So the State Street case back in, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, said, well, you know, business methods are patentable. So now we have a lot of issues about that. Surgical methods are patentable, because surgical methods are kind of odd. Congress said, well, that's okay, but we're going to take away a lot of the remedies that you have. And then you have a method of ripping a putter, or a method of demonstrating how to lift the box. Or the middle one is a really significant area. There's something like a 1,000 patents a year uh, issued in that area, financial products. That's a method of, you know, assuming, using a, an insurance policy to reduce your losses when you close a nuclear power plant. And there are thousands of these patents that are basically financial um, products. And I suppose today we're at the point that almost anything, if it has almost any function at all, is probably going to be eligible for patent protection. But of course, I think it also is important to mention, because it gets lost sometimes, I'm only talking about things that are eligible to be protected under Section 101 of the Patent Law. It doesn't mean they're going to pass all the other tests, like obviousness and novelty and everything else. We're just talking about what's eligible. And I guess my other favorite case, I didn't put it up there, is the Juicy Whip case, which is essentially a, uh, a claim to deceive consumers. And it didn't bother the Fed Circuit. They were like, yeah, okay, that's a utility. So that's perfectly permissible. And then, let's go back in history for a second. Back in 1842, Congress decided, well, there was a, an area of IP that wasn't covered, so we have to do something about that. And so they enacted design patent law, which is also called, around the rest of the world, industrial design protection. It's essentially a way to make functional products look nice. I see in the audience some Apple computers. One of the reasons Apple stuff sells, it looks nice. I mean, you look at a Dell computer, you look at an Apple computer, the apples look a lot nicer. They have a nice sleek design. Well, that's what design patents were designed for. We want to encourage people to make things look nice. In the legislative history, there's not a lot, but there's, there's a limited amount of the 1842, from 1842, talks about, well, the ornamental appearance of products, of functional products, so-called industrial design, Congress and the patent office believed at the time, well, that wasn't covered by utility patents, and it wasn't covered by copyrights. So we have this whole vast area of law we got to cover. So they enacted design patent law to cover that. Example type of things that are covered, well, that's a camera. And the, the patent claims, by the way, are always just like this. Basically, it says the picture. doesn't say anything else. Those are automotive parts. The automotive industry likes design patents a lot because then you can't buy OEM parts because you've got to buy the ones that, that they design. We want to talk about the last area, trademark law, which also has undergone an incredible expansion and, and seems to have gone under the radar. It doesn't bother anybody but me. You know, trademark law, what's trademark law designed to do? Well, it's a shorthand. You know, you see a trademark and you immediately think of certain characteristics of a product, whatever that might be. So, you know, you're buying orange juice, you see Tropicana, well, that has a certain association. You know, you might pay more for Tropicana than, you know, Acme brand orange juice. There's certain things that attach to that. It's essentially a, you know, a signal to uh, consumers. 
And historically, trademarks were words, short phrases, or simple non-repetitive designs. That was it. But this has also expanded dramatically since the 80s or 90s, to the point that today, virtually anything that creates a mental association is potentially a trademark. I'll give you some examples. Well, the color of a product. That was the famous politics case, but it's Supreme Court. The actual color of the product, that could be a trademark. How about the smell of a product? That can be a trademark. What about the shape of a container? Those all are, are, are protected by trademark owners. Of you can probably identify them. That's Coke, that's Heinz ketchup, and that's Papyria butter. That actually combines the shape and the color. How about the actual shape of not a container, but the product? Apple has a trademark registration on that shape for iPod. They've actually filed on all their products, iPods, iPads, everything. That's a sensory trademark. These people, I can't pronounce it, so it's a wine from Eastern Europe. They glued fabric to the bottle. I think it's law fabric. And so it has a nice feel. And they claim a trademark on that. And that was registered as a sensory trademark. That's been allowed. And I suppose, what about, what about a sound? Atlanta. You know, that's for the insurance company. Or, or this one. Dope. That's Homer Simpson saying dope. That's been registered as a trademark. There are actually hundreds of these sounds registered. Um, some are longer, some are shorter. And then, of course, we have things like this, which I'm not even sure how to categorize. Al Johnson has a restaurant out in Wisconsin, and many years ago he decided to put sod on the roof, and every morning he puts goats on the roof. And so he's been known for that. So we've got a trademark, a service mark registration for restaurant services. He's now busy suing someone else to put some kind of other animal on the roof. <laughs> but this illustrates the point that trademarks have left their original roots, and they can be almost anything now. As long as there's some mental association created. As long as people see goats on a roof and they think of this guy's restaurant, that's potentially uh, operating as a trademark. The next issue, I guess, that comes up, is, and, and I thought about this when I was working on this article, was, well, okay, so we have this theoretical overlap. But, you know, law professors are famous for coming up with problems where no one else thinks there's a problem <laughs> except the law professor. So I did a little... Um, empirical research, because I wanted to see, is this really a problem, or is it just kind of an interesting, kind of weird thing I found? Well, I found lots and lots of examples of overlapping protection, and that I think it is problematic. This is one of the first things I found, which actually piqued my interest. You all recognize that. That's the, uh, you know, the web interface for Google. And of course, they claim copyright protection, which makes perfect sense. It's pictorial work that appears on the screen of a computer. They also got a design patent on it in 2006, and that struck me as a little weird. But nevertheless, the patent office didn't see a problem. So Google now has protection under copyright for its interface and under federal design patent law. Well, I think that raises two problems. Now getting to the point of talking about the overlaps and why I think it's a problem. What's the first problem? Well, the first problem is the design patent statute specifically says or talks about it protects the ornamental appearance of an article of manufacture. So what does that mean in English? It means the exterior appearance of something. It looks nice. Well, I've got the thinking, well, that's a problem. This appears on a computer screen. So what's the product? Well, the article of manufacture that has the ornamentation on it. Is it the computer monitor? And so this appears on the screen, and that's ornamentation of the computer monitor? Well, apparently that's the view of the patent office, and they've issued lots of patents on this. They don't see a problem. I would argue this is a freestanding pictorial work that could appear on your wall, on your computer monitor, on your TV, on anything. I'm not sure it's really ornamentation making the computer monitor look nice. And let's extrapolate from that for a second. Um, well, let me first do a, a, a comparison. You know, again, the Apple computers, that's something you have 
The exterior appearance, the way the case is designed, okay, you know, that's aesthetically pleasing. And that's integrated or attached to or, you know, ornamenting the outside appearance. This doesn't seem to fit that to me. The other problem is, if something that appears on the screen could be considered ornamentation, then what about other kinds of artwork or computer icons or anything else you could project on the screen? So if I paint a painting that's a famous painting, can I now get a design patent on it because it can be digitized and shown on a computer screen? Doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to me what the design patent was designed to protect. Nevertheless, Computer icons. Plenty of patents, design patents issued on computer icons. Under the same reasoning I mentioned before. Well, it appears on a computer screen, so therefore it apparently is ornamentation of the computer monitor. So that raises the second problem. Interface that Google has is obviously protectable under copyright law. So it is. And of course, icons are also protected by copyright law. These have a copyright registration file. Those have design patents. So it raises the next question. Is what Google did so unusual? They got both. The answer is no. In fact, the MPEP, that's the Manual Patent Examining Procedure, which tells patent examiners, you know, the guidelines for examining patents, it basically says an ornamental design may be copyrighted as a work of art. And it may also be a subject matter of design patent. And you can't make the person choose. They can get both. So basically, you can get the same protection on both. Now, that raises a question. Okay, so you're sitting there going, who the hell cares? What difference does it make? Well, I think it makes a significant difference. A design patent, like a utility patent, are exclusive rights for a limited period of time. Design patents were originally, originally seven years. They're now 14. But what's the deal with a patent? Well, when the patent term ends, the world's supposed to have free access to it. So after 14 years, anyone who wants to copy any of these things, they should be allowed to. But copyright lasts for the author's life plus 70. So my design patent expires, and all the doctrines under patent law are designed to reflect the balance of a limited period of time, and everyone gets the rights in return for the exclusive rights. Well, when my design patent expires, my exclusive rights disappear, but I get non-exclusive copyright rights. Now, if these have been in wide use, it's going to be very difficult for someone to argue they hadn't seen it, and therefore if someone copies it, they're going to be a copyright infringer. So I get the benefits of design patent, but then I keep getting protection, after design patent ends. I think that's problematic. Although if I was the owner of the IP, I certainly would pursue this approach. Well, in addition to acquiring protection under design patent and trademark and, and, and uh, copyright at the same time, what about also getting protection under <coughs> trademark law? And after all, if you get two, why not go for three? Could the appearance of a product be protected under trademark law? Well, as you said earlier, you know, almost anything today which has a trademark function makes you think of a product or service seems to be allowed. So we have the iconic Coke bottle. That's protected as a trademark. It's also protected under design patent law. So before we had an overlap copyright and design patent, this is a classic overlap design patent and trademark. And again, the question is, why is that a problem? Well, the design patent ends after 14 years. The trademark lasts potentially forever, as long as there's a metal association. Well, Coke's been around a long time. It's still a pretty strong metal association. So the design patent ends, and then people still can't use it because on the trademark law, that would be problematic. Let's think of another area. So I actually picked different areas when I was doing the research. Sound recordings and music. That's protectable by copyright. You know, that's been the source of a tremendous amount of litigation today on the copyright. It's in fact, reinvigorated copyright law. When I practiced back in the 80s, copyright law was one of those areas that was completely moribund. There was almost no work to do in it. Now, all of a sudden, there's lots of work because of the Internet and, and downloading music. There's been a lot of copyright issues. And no question, music and sounds are protectable by copyright. I've heard a few examples of some sounds before. 
that were already protected under uh, trademark law. So we have potential. What about, I suppose, another issue? Think about music, you know, a song. Not, not a couple of notes, a whole song. Could that serve a trademark function? Let's see an example. That's registered as a trademark by 20th Century Fox for movies and cartoons and things. It's also a musical creation. It's clearly protected by copyright, but it's also protected by trademark law. And again, we have the balance, even the copyrights you have a long term, life plus 70, the typical term. But if it still has a trademark function after the copyright expires, they're still going to be able to protect it. Yeah. Think about Walt Disney. Mickey Mouse, before they got the copyright term extended, was about to expire. Well, it's, it's going to expire fairly soon, but they could claim rights under trademark law. And those could go on forever. Kind of upsets the balance that was built into copyright law. That a certain amount of time, the public domain has access to it. And the last area I looked at was clothing. Because clothing presents a lot of problems. You know, typically, no matter how creative clothing is, usually you can't get trademark uh, copyright protection because the courts view it as inherently functional, even if it's really weird clothing. They still view it as inherently functional. And it's, you know, very difficult to get copyright protection. So difficult, in fact, that we had a speaker in the fall, a professor from Harvard Law School, got legislation introduced in the Congress to protect fashion design because copyright doesn't protect it. And that's, I don't think it's going to go anyplace, but that uh, bill would protect outer clothing, your underwear for some reason, shoes, handbags, pocketbooks, eyeglasses, and a few other categories that, you know, I guess they need protection badly. Um, the theory being copyright doesn't apply. Well, that's probably true, but design patents apply no problem. That's a T-shirt. Those are hats. Hats are a particularly funny thing. You have hundreds of design patents on hats of all kinds. So you can't get protection of the copyright law if this clothing is inherently functional. But you can get protection of the design patent law, which is not supposed to be protecting inherently functional things. It's only supposed to be protecting ornamental things. Yet it has not seemed to bother the patent office. And they have issued many, many design patents on uh, products like that. I mean, go a step further. That's not color, so it's hard to see. But that, that's a, a patent on a hat that looks like you have a scrambled egg on your head. So you put it on like an idiot walking around with a scrambled egg. <laughs> What's the point of that? Well, the patent says the point was to attract attention. They got a utility patent on it. Not a design patent, a utility patent. The, the patent, and they read the specification, that's the only asserted utility, and that seemed okay to the patent office. You want to attract attention. That also means they've expanded the utility requirement to the point of being absurd. So does that mean if I'm a famous painter or I paint a painting, I can get a utility patent because you paint a painting or a sculpture to attract attention? Seems like an absurd result to me, but it doesn't seem to bother the uh, patent office. Then again, that's a hat which looks like a cheeseburger on your head. <laughs> that was the subject of a design patent. So now, now I'm puzzled. Utility patents I thought for for, for, for functional things, and design patents are for ornamental non-functional things. Well, those are both novelty hats that make you look stupid like you have something on your head. Yet, on one hand, the patent office said it was functional, on one hand, they said it was non-functional. So does that mean you can get both? Raises an interesting question. I'm not sure the answer to that. You know, and let me just finish up with, um, you know, I really, I think this is a serious problem, and, and I think it's going to continue to be a problem unless there's some kind of... Uh, attempt to fix this. And, and why is it a problem? Well, you know, from the perspective of a copyright of, a, of an IP owner, 
this is great. I can protect my stuff all a million different ways. However, so can your competitors. And so that's going to limit the availability of a lot of creativity into the marketplace. It also upsets the whole balance. You know, IP rights are given to promote innovation and creativity to benefit the public, not to reward inventors uh, because they created something. So it really upsets the balance. Unfortunately, I don't know what the solution is. That's, I guess, the next paper. But the problem is the courts seem to not be the least bit concerned about this. In fact, they seem to be closing their eyes to it. Congress um, is probably where this would have to be fixed. I think they probably have to pass some legislation will be more clearly defined the domain of each of these areas so they stop overlapping. That's also unlikely to happen because now for 10 years they've been talking about patent reform and they've gotten nothing passed. So it's a problem. I'm not sure what the solution is, but I think it's a significant problem. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.